Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. Albert Einstein said, No problem can be solved within the same consciousness which created it. Significant change will be required if we are to improve our healthcare system, but is this realistic? Welcome to our special series on public health policy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Shortell. Dr. Shortell is the Blue Cross of California Distinguished Professor of Health Policy and Management and Professor of Organization Behavior at the School of Public Health and Haas School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. A leading healthcare scholar, Dr. Shortell has done extensive research identifying the organizational and managerial correlates of quality of care and of high-performing healthcare organizations. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Happy to be here. Dr. Shortella, I'm very interested in your expertise on change. What is necessary for successful organizational change? One way to think about successful change is doctors and others try to implement changes in their practice is just four steps, kind of boiling that down. One is you have to be dissatisfied with the status quo, where it just is uncomfortable for you to continue the way you're currently doing things. You know, certainly in healthcare, I think we've reached that state with business and industry concerned about the high healthcare costs, the growth of chronic illness, and so forth. So the first thing is the discomfort with the way things are now. The second thing is somebody has to have a vision of the future. So if you don't like the way things are now, then what's the vision of what's going to be better? And that has to be articulated of what's going to be better, and you have to be able to see that in a tangible way, or else people aren't going to jump, they're not going to move. Third is you need a detailed implementation strategy of what's the first step that's going to be taken, and then what's the next step, and what's the third step. So they need a practical plan as, as well. Some of us are very good, you know, at articulating visions and going from mountaintop to mountaintop, but not very good at filling in the valleys. Mm-hmm. And you need somebody, you know, in the practice or in the organization that can deal with the murky details of filling in the valleys to achieve the vision. Then finally, you need to institutionalize that change. That simply means so that it becomes part of the routine way of providing care. It has the resources, it's reinforced, and so on. Some people find that a simple four-step model for successful change useful. There's a lot of detail, of course, behind all four of those steps. But how do you create discomfort with the current status quo? How do you articulate the vision of where you want to go? How do you fill in the valley with the detailed first step, second step, third step, and then how do you reinforce that with the new reward system, Mm -hmm. essential for successful change? Now, why do some changes then last and others don't? This is a key question. You get a lot of backsliding, you know, flavor of the month and so forth and so on. I think, um, let me, you know, sort of a personal example of why some changes don't last or what's necessary to make them last If you ask me to do something different from what I've been doing, whether it be how to register patients or how to do a workup or how to do post-care follow-up, then I probably need to know four things as to why I should do something different. One is you need to make sure I understand the new strategy or the change that you want me to do. I need to understand it not from your perspective or the organizations or the practice, but I need to understand what it means for my behavior. Mm. So I need to translate it into my behavior. 
And if I understand that, then I got a good grasp on things. Secondly, I need to agree with this change. So even if I understand, if I don't agree, I'm going to find ways of not doing it or backsliding or, you know, whatever it might be. Sabotage. Exactly. (laughs) Sabotage it. Exactly right. So you need to engage me in some back and forth and give me a chance to provide input. And maybe I have a good idea on how the change might even work better than what you've suggested. So I need to agree with it. Third is I need to feel I can do it. You're asking me to do something different outside my comfort zone. And maybe I need some training or retraining or support. You can't just assume that I can automatically do it. This created a lot of anxiety in me mm-hmm. to do something differently than I've done before. Perhaps, you know, it depends obviously on the nature of the change. And fourth is I might understand it and I agree with you and I feel fully capable of making this change, but being human, I'm kind of saying to myself, hmm, it's a pretty big change. What's in it for me? I want to send my son or daughter to college, you know, just like everyone else. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a financial reward, but it needs to be some kind of reward or carrot at the end of it for me to go through this agony of making this change. Again, we're depending on the nature of the change, not something small here. So the reason a lot of changes don't last is because you can't get positive answers with your people to all four of those questions, and there's backsliding. And so typically, someone from higher up mandates the change, and there's very little dialogue. Exactly. This would be if it's mandated from the top. Exactly right. If it comes up from the bottom, that's great, but then it needs to be blessed and supported by the top, or the change isn't going to have the blessing or resources, and it'll be sabotaged from the top, if you will. Right, right. So it does work both ways. People have to come to agreement on those four questions. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. Here's why we're capable of doing it. And here's how we're going to get the reward of it. We're going to get more patients. Our patients will be better. We'll get more reimbursement in the long run, you know, whatever it might be. All four of those questions need to be answered. Now, if we think about really the daunting task of reform in our healthcare system, I think the first rule is already met, dissatisfaction with the status quo. Everybody's unhappy from the physicians to the payers to the patients. So that step we've got. But number two seems to be where we're really stuck. What is our vision of the future? You know, especially among my physician colleagues, we don't want to have a system like Canada or like the UK. So how do we we go about really creating a vision of the future that we all can live with. Yeah, it is a huge challenge if you look at the political candidates and at the state level is we don't have a clear vision of what we want in the future. We have competing visions, and so it's going to be difficult. I think most people will agree at some level that the current system we're not getting as much value from as we should. We're the most expensive system in the world, nearly 16, 17% of our GDP. We still don't cover 47 million Americans, don't have any health insurance coverage. And our quality, whereas very good in some conditions in some parts of the country and with certain classes of patients, is highly variable. And on most national and cross-national comparisons, we don't do very good on quality either. So I think there's some agreement given the fact that health care reform is number two on the agenda after the war, that once again, as before, this is a big issue that troubles Americans, particularly as we have more baby boomers and they're in the age now getting more chronic illness and as employers are very, very dissatisfied with the cost, etc. But we're not exactly sure, other than the fact that something needs to be done, exactly what it is that needs to be done. I would say that most of the discussion, Dr. Lentz, so far 
has focused on a universal coverage, expanding insurance coverage. Some people talk about single-payer way to get there. And we've had almost no discussion of the other side of the equation, which is delivery system reform. And one thing for all of us to think about is what good will it really do us to expand insurance coverage for all Americans, 47 million, and dump them into a delivery system where it will not be affordable after a year or two because of the high cost, because of the errors, because of the waste, because of the fragmentation that's inherent in our system. We'll be back at square one. And I'm not against universal coverage. We certainly need that, and everybody would probably be for that. But we also need to give more attention to the delivery side and a lot more attention to public health as well, the importance really of prevention and how we design our schools and our communities that influence health probably more than how we organize the delivery system. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Shortell. His most recent book is entitled Remaking Healthcare in America, The Evolution of Organized Delivery Systems. We are discussing the changes necessary for healthcare reform. Now, Dr. Shortell, what have we learned from other countries' experiences? Clearly, we're not the first to go through this. We are not, and we can probably learn a lot more from uh, the U.K. and from the Scandinavian countries in this area. I think one of the things that we've learned in the U.K., United Kingdom, is the importance of performance data and how to use that data to feed it back, to get change, and to get physician buy-in. They do a lot of that in the U.K. They have this National Institute for Clinical Excellence that produces summaries of the research base and the evidence base for new clinical practices and drugs and so forth. The Dutch system, the Danish system, the Swedish system, they have a big emphasis on prevention in primary care. And throughout the world, those countries that have healthier health statistics than we have tend to have a bigger emphasis on primary care and prevention than we do here in the U.S. And here in the U.S., As we probably all know, we have uh, what looks like developing an acute shortage of primary care physicians. So there's some things we can learn from the other systems in that regard. And the other thing is most of these other systems are really no longer single payer. They have universal coverage, but uh, they typically will have a couple of payers, a big private sector payer in addition to government paying as well. So it's not at all clear from these other countries that single payer alone will necessarily be a magic bullet. There are no magic bullets to deal with this issue. The big difference, though, I think, between ourselves and other countries is the other countries are much more centralized than we are. Mm -hmm. They have much more centralized direction of their health and social services. So once they decide on a policy change, they can pretty much implement it. They can mandate it. And that's just not the American way. Whatever we might try to agree on, we've got the uh, 50 different states, we've got nearly 800,000 different practicing physicians, 5,500 different hospitals, a couple thousand different nursing homes, et cetera, et cetera. And we believe in decentralization and autonomy and, you know, the new frontier, <laughs> et cetera. And our culture is just very, very different from Western Europe or, or Canada. And I think that is our biggest challenge, even if we could come to some agreement on what we might like to see it's going to get implemented, you know, very, very differently. And there's a lot to be said for that, too, but we also pay a price for it. We also pay a price for it. And up to now, maybe we've been willing to pay that price. Yeah, with a big price tag. It's a big price tag. 
but we value our choice, autonomy, state rights. Uh, we don't like government by and large. We don't think uh, they do things very efficiently. We fear government. It's, you know, unlike other countries. And so that's something that we, we have to face as part of our challenge here in the United States. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. We've been discussing change and how it relates to healthcare reform with our guest today, Dr. Stephen Shortell. Dr. Stephen Shortell is the Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to a special series on public health policy at ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.